Isaiah 34, when we stand, if you could move forward, that would be great. And uh, move up here in the first handful of rows, that'd be wonderful. Isaiah chapter number 34, and we're going to look at the first four verses. Let's stand together if we're so able to do for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 34, 1 through 5, as we get started, we'll be going verse by verse of this chapter this week. The Bible says, Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear. And all that is therein, the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The title of the Bible study, again, is The Sinful World Will Be Judged. Let's pray. God, as we dive in verse by verse this evening to this chapter, give us a good understanding of what it is that your word says. Help us, God, to take uh, these verses to heart. And remember that one day, Lord, uh, all of the wrong and evil of this world will be punished. And, Lord, uh, you will hold wrongdoers accountable and righteousness and the good will reign supreme. Help us to be encouraged and motivated by the Bible study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's important for us to understand we live in a world filled with evil. There's a war going on around us. I talked about that this evening when we opened the service. Good versus evil. God versus Satan. This is a battle that's going on. All around us. Take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and mark this because we're going to look at this verse several times this evening. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 11. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. One day uh, we're going to come upon something. I'm, I'm reviewing what we covered last week. We're going to come upon something called the day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is highlighted all throughout the minor and major prophets throughout the prophecy books of the Bible, you'll find that phrase, day of the Lord, day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? That is a day, a time that's marked by the seven-year tribulation up through the millennial reign of Christ. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, we get the battle of Armageddon where God punishes evildoers, and uh, then he sets up his kingdom and his kingdom reigns supreme. And uh, I said last week that God is a passionate God. You're either going to fall under his passionate love and be rewarded, or you're going to land under his passionate wrath and uh, you're going to be condemned and judged. And uh, it's going to be a terrifying event. It's going to be a fearful event. Uh, Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. It says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest in God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. We 
persuade men. Why is it that we're actively persuading men with the Gospel? Because we know the terror of the Lord. Um, I met a guy yesterday. Uh, was it yesterday? Yes, yesterday. Two days ago. Monday. I met a guy Monday at a gas station out in the parking lot. I was with our missionary, brother, or with Brother Morgan, missionary in Japan. And um, uh, uh, he stopped and gave the guy a track. And the guy says, I go to such and such church, but I've kind of fallen off. He said, I grew up Catholic, but I quit going to the Catholic church because all they preach is the condemnation and a vengeful God. And he said, God is not a vengeful God. God is a God of love. And I looked at the guy and I smiled and I said, God is both. God is a balance of mercy and truth. And he said, yeah, that's true. And I said, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And he looked at me and said, well, I, no, I don't want to hear about the vengeful side of God. God is just a God of love, and God is a God that offers hope. And I said, yes, God is a God that offers hope, but God one day is going to punish wrongdoers. Evil must be punished. The guy didn't want to hear it, and so... We encouraged him to visit, and we moved on with our day. But people that want to focus on the love of God and not want to focus on the judgment of God, listen, God punishes wrongdoing, and if He didn't, God wouldn't be just. God wouldn't be just. What would America look like if we opened up all the prisons and let everyone out? And what would America look like if wrongdoing was never held accountable in a court of law? What would, what would America look like if uh, the, uh, people who committed murder were, didn't even get a slap on the wrist or were just allowed to go free? This would be total anarchy. No one would want to live here. Uh, you cannot have a civil society without a justice system. And In fact, uh, it is evil to not punish evil. It is evil to let a wrongdoing, uh, to look the other way at wrongdoing and uh, God would be evil to not punish evil. God would be evil to not punish wrongdoers. And so one day the terror of the Lord will be poured out. And knowing this fact, knowing that one day wrongdoing will be, uh, uh, will be punished, we persuade men. We're actively convincing people to put their faith and trust in Christ. I said last week soul winning is not just something that weird Baptist preachers harp on. It is of great necessity that we all share the risen Christ with anyone and everyone who will listen because if our loved ones die without Christ, they will experience the condemnation and the wrath of God. They will experience this is a real thing. And uh, listen, one day, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ to be your Savior, if your spouse has not done that, if your children have not done that, if your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and your neighbors and your co-workers and even your enemies have not done that, one day they will land under the wrath of God and they will be deeply punished. We're going to go verse by verse through Isaiah 34 this evening. Let's quickly recap what we looked at last week. Uh, all of that was introduction for the uh, Bible study tonight. And then we'll get right into Isaiah 34 verse by verse. All right, on the back of your bulletin you see uh, last week's notes. But let's quickly run through as a uh, reminder uh, to help us with uh, the message tonight. Number one, notice a timeline of biblical prophecy. A timeline of of biblical prophecy now laid out for you what I believe to be the timeline of upcoming biblical events we said letter a the rapture of the church now we said that word rapture is not found in the in the bible 
but the concept of the rapture is. The word rapture means a catching away. 1 Thessalonians 4, we find that idea of the catching away. And uh, Paul reminds the church at Thessalonica, don't weep over those that have died. One day Jesus is going to come back just as he ascended. He's going to come back in the clouds. The trumpet is going to sound. There will be a shout of an archangel. The dead in Christ will rise. Then those that are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We looked at Revelation 4 and saw how that those verses very similarly parallel what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. We said in Revelation 2 and 3, the church is addressed. And then in Revelation 4, the church is no longer addressed. Why? Because they're caught away. They're taken up to heaven to meet the Lord in the air. I quipped and joked last week that the dead in Christ rise first because we have a six feet head start on them. They're six feet under, hence they go first so that we can all go up together. So we see the rapture of the church, letter B. Uh, Next event is the wrath of the Lamb. We saw how that this idea of God's wrath being poured out on man is not something that comes at the end of the tribulation. This is not something that comes after the three and a half year mark. Satan's wrath is poured out after the three and a half year mark. God's wrath begins at the very beginning. In fact, the very end of Revelation 6, the end of the trumpet judgments, we find people crying out, declaring uh, the wrath of the Lamb has come. And so uh, God will not pour out His wrath on His own. Uh, He'll only pour out His wrath on an earth where God is uh, not present. And so the church is raptured out. The Holy Spirit no longer present. The wrath of God is poured out on this earth. The judgment of God has began. We see the rapture of the church, the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, the, that would be the seven-year tribulation. The next event on the timeline is the rescue of the Jews. We said that at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist sits on the, uh, the, the throne of David, declares himself to be God. That is an abominable act that desolates the temple of the Jews, known as the abomination of desolation. The Jews go into hiding, using the wilderness to hide. And uh, the Lord helps protect them. And for three-and-a-half years, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they seek to punish and destroy the Jews. And uh, at at the very end of this uh, three and a half years, who comes to their rescue but the Messiah they rejected the first time He came? Who comes to their rescue but Jesus Christ Himself? And uh, we're we're going to look at that rescue in a little bit more detail in point two. So the rescue of the Jews, letter D, notice the reign of King Jesus. The reign of King Jesus. Jesus sets up His Uh, His kingdom here on earth, He rules and reigns in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. We looked at that out of Revelation 20. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is released from the pit of hell. And uh, he gathers up those who would reject Jesus. He marches them toward Jerusalem to try to take on King Jesus. And God drops a ball of fire out of heaven. You can find all this in Revelation. Drops a ball of fire out of heaven. He destroys the, the army. Those who are uh, antithetical toward the reign of Jesus, he gathers up, he binds up Satan, he throws him in hell and into the bottomless pit forever, and uh, uh, Jesus wins. And then letter E, we see the renewal of heaven and earth, both Peter in his epistle and then in Revelation 21, John in in his uh, book here talks about the destruction of the current heaven and earth. 
and the, uh, the, the, the uh, beginning of a new heaven and a new earth. I said last week that heaven was tainted when Satan sinned in heaven. You may remember that he tried to elevate himself above God and tried to exalt his throne above God's throne. And him and a third of the angels were thrown out of heaven. And so the heaven where God currently resides was tainted by sin. While sin is not there anymore, it has been tainted by sin. And we know that this earth has been greatly tainted and is under a sin curse. And one day God is going to do away with this heaven and earth and it's going to burn up with a fervent heat. And one day God is going to allow us to live on a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this little note I didn't share last week, but I'll I'll share here. Uh, We don't know much about the current heaven. There's very little said about the current heaven. Uh, In fact, most of what we know in Revelation 21 uh, describes the new Jerusalem that will be in the new heaven. And we know nothing about the new earth. We know nothing about the new heaven except of what's shared about the one city in the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. And uh, uh, you say, well, why doesn't God give us more detail? And uh, listen, he's given us everything we need to motivate us to do what's right. Someone said that if we knew everything that awaited us in eternity, we may lose our will to live here. And so he didn't want to tell us all that. And uh, Some have wondered what will be in heaven that maybe we can't even begin to grasp or comprehend here. And I'm left to wonder that if there won't be maybe more uh, uh, the ability to, to do more, maybe like see music or uh, to be able to taste colors. And you wonder what additional things will be added in heaven that we'll get to enjoy. But I'm just going to say this here. Whatever about heaven that we'll be able to enjoy that we can't even comprehend right now, there will be nothing better than being able to go into the presence of the one who saved us. Be able to worship him at his throne. Be able to behold the, the, the nail prints in his hands and his side. And realize that he did that for us. One of my favorite attributes about the New Jerusalem is that there are 12 gates with 12 pearls. And the description of those gates is given there in Revelation 21. And we know that they're going to be very tall and very large pearls. Have you ever stopped to think about how a pearl is created? A pearl is created by a a piece of irritant, a piece of sand getting into an oyster shell. And uh, there is the creation of that of that uh, pearl because it's trying to get rid of uh, that that irritant and it's covering up that irritant with uh, its own uh, slime and that slime hardens and becomes a pearl and each and every time the saints in heaven go in and out of the gates of heaven we're going to be reminded of the irritant of sin and how that was covered by the grace of God. And those pearls will stand representative of how our sin was forgiven and God's grace covered our sin and became the beautiful pearls that make up the gates that allow us to enter in and out of the new Jerusalem in heaven. So we see a timeline of biblical prophecy. Well, let, let's look back there at that, out, that point one and the subpoints. You see there the rescue of the Jews. How are the Jews rescued? Well, they're rescued by King Jesus coming out of heaven on a horse with the church-age saints. We're going to come riding down into the valley of Megiddo there on the outskirts of Jerusalem and the forces of Satan, the forces, and what are the forces of Satan? Well, to be very plain, they're the armies of the world. They're going to gather together under the Antichrist and they're going to have a head-to-head war 
against King Jesus. And we're going to be uh, his army, but we're not going to need to do anything. We're going to spectate because King Jesus is going to do everything. And that army that has persecuted the Jews for that three and a half years, led by the Antichrist, will be destroyed. And so Isaiah 34 focuses solely on that battle, that battle in the valley of Megiddo, that valley that has been called the battle of Armageddon. So we've seen a timeline of biblical prophecy. Let's jump down to number two and notice the terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord. Anytime I ask for praises or things we're grateful for as a church congregation, people begin to raise their hand around the room. And let me tell you what I hear. I hear people say, I'm thankful for God's mercy. Come back Sunday morning. We're going to be talking about, on Father's Day, we're going to be talking about a merciful father. I, listen, I am thankful for God's mercy. Aren't you glad that God didn't kill you uh, when you deserve to be killed? How many of you would have been killed a long, long time ago if God would? Amen? Me too. Um, I, I'm glad that God is not just the God of the second chance, but the millionth chance. I think I might be on the ten millionth chance right now. How many times I've blown it. And um, God continues to forgive over and over. I'm thankful for God's mercy. And when I ask for people to express what they're grateful for God about, I hear God's love and God's patience and His long-suffering and His goodness and His gentleness and His Holy Spirit to comfort us. And Listen, I'm thankful for all those things too. But do you know, while we want to focus on the mercy side of God, there is the other side of God that we don't like to focus on, but is just as much part of the character of God as His mercy. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 24. Here Moses is preparing... Um, Israel to go into the promised land. Their parents blew it. The next generation has been raised up. Deuteronomy means the re-giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. The re-giving of the law. And so um, Moses is helping these folks to, as they're preparing to go and he's helping them to understand who God is and what they're dealing with. Look at verse 24. Moses tells the, these Israelites, he says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire even a jealous God, a consuming fire. Now, I think when God told the Israelites this, the, these young adults remembered back to their childhood at the time where God sent fire through the camp and killed many of their friends' parents and even some of their own parents over their idolatry. He, they very well remembered God coming through uh, with uh, the serpents that bit them and uh, how the cross, uh, remember that pole with the serpent on it, the brazen serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness. They, they remembered the time that Moses drew a line in the sand and said, who is on the Lord's side? And those that wouldn't come across, uh, the Levites went through and with the sword 
killed many of them there at the base of Mount Sinai, they knew that God was a consuming fire. They remembered the, the quail that came through and uh, they were forced to eat it until it was uh, coming out of their nostrils. They, they remembered uh, 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 the, the, the Israelites being turned, to, turned away there from Kadesh Barnea over there doubting and then the, the small crew turning around and attempting to go in and then being killed and slain. They had seen the terror of the Lord. They had seen the justice of God. They had seen the wrath of God come down on wrongdoing, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31. You say, well, Pastor, Deuteronomy uh, 4, that's Old Testament, and we're no longer under the law. Pastor, we're under grace. And uh, yeah, I know God was a God of a consuming fire in the Old Testament, but Pastor, that's the law, and that's the execution of the law. But now we're under grace, and, and Pastor, there's grace, and, and, and God is no longer that now in the era of grace. And Hebrews is in the New Testament, and Paul says in Hebrews 10, verse number 31, he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is still a God of justice in the, in the New Testament, just as He was in the Old Testament. He is still a God of wrath. He is still a jealous God. Um, this isn't in the notes. I'm just going to insert this. You all at home, you're going to need to get your Bible out because this is uh, this just came in my mind. Turn it to James 4. Look at James chapter 4. Quickly, James 4, and look at verse number 4. God has some very strong language for us about those who are um, uh, idolizing and worshiping and flirting with sin and the world instead of being loyal to the God who saved us by grace. Look at James 4, look at verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. That is strong language. Now, we live in a sexually charged world where adultery has become uh, a more of a prominent part. Can I say this right here real quick? We live in a culture where uh, every form of sexual sin has been normalized and made okay. But even in this culture, even in this climate, everyone still looks down on adultery. Everyone. Homosexuality, hey, we, we, not here at this church, but as a culture, that is celebrated, right? Uh, you're, you're made an icon if you declare to be a gender other than your biological sex. But even in this culture, adultery is something to be ashamed of. And the strongest possible language, James says, he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be friend of the world is the enemy of God. I wonder, don't raise your hands, but I wonder how many of you in here have ever had a spouse who felt someone encroaching on your marriage through flirtation and had to deal with a jealous spouse. If you've ever had to deal with a husband or wife who is filled with jealousy, you have dealt with a home that is no fun to live in. You have dealt with a marriage that is no fun to live in. Do you know, my friend, that God sees you in love with the world, and you know what He feels? He feels great jealousy because He saved you with His blood. He redeemed you from sin so that you would not serve sin, but that you would serve and love Him. 
When we go flirt with the world, we fall in love with some inner form of entertainment that is godless, and uh, we run around and emulate and mock uh, uh, or emulate and live by uh, a culture that is antithetical to the Word of God. God is a jealous God. You don't want to fall into the hands of a living God. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Uh, turn over to Second Corinthians chapter five. I told you to hold your place there. Let's look. Let's look back at that verse. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, and look at verse number 11. We need to move quickly here. We've got the outline to get through. Look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Hey, look, it isn't just that some people are going to miss out on heaven. That's not why we tell them about, uh, tell them about um, uh, Jesus and how to be saved. We realize that there is a date on the calendar. I mentioned this last week. There is a date on God's calendar where sin will be judged. It's just as real as Thanksgiving and Christmas is on this year's calendar. It's coming just like the 4th of July is on our calendars. There is a judgment room in heaven where lost people will stand and will be drug over the portals of eternity and thrown into hell, and then hell will be thrown in the bottomless pit and they will live under the wrath of God for all of eternity. And knowing this, we persuade men. The terror of the Lord. Let's get into Isaiah 43. Go back there. Letter A, notice the slaughter of the wicked. The slaughter of the wicked. Look at Isaiah chapter 43. Joel Olstein won't be preaching out of this chapter anytime soon. All right? But this is just as much in the Bible as all those lovey-dovey passages that get preached on. And sometimes the love of God is so focused on, we ignore the terror of the Lord. Look at chapter 43 and look at verse 1 with me again. Think about the battle of Armageddon as we read this. But um, I, I give you the right chapter. I don't think Isaiah 34. I got I got dyslexic there for a minute. Isaiah 34, and look at verse number one. All right, here we go. Uh, it says, "Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is there in the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord uh, is upon all. Notice that all nations, and His fury upon." All their armies, he hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Some of this speech is hyperbolic here, but look at it. Uh, their slain uh, also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. You get a, quite a graphic visual there. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. We know that at this battle, uh, we'll look at it in Revelation in a moment, the mouth of God is going to open. The sword of the Lord will become uh, evident and obvious and uh, the armies of the nation with all of their might and power and wonder will be destroyed in an instant. The slaughter of the wicked, notice letter B, the sword of the Lord. The sword of the Lord. Look at verse number 5. Uh, the Bible says here, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. We're going to look at Ezekiel in a moment and, and see what that means. Bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia. And that is uh, a word uh, meaning the Edomites. Uh, uh, you may remember Esau, how that there was conflict between Esau and um, 
uh, and Isaac and Esau went off in rebellion and started his own nation and uh, the Edomites would plague and, and needle and bother the Israelites and then even when the Israelites were carried away into Babylonian captivity they mocked and made fun of and, 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 and bothered them it says shall come down upon Edomia or Edom and upon all uh, upon the people of my curse to judgment look at verse 6 the sword of the Lord is filled with blood, it is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lamb and goats, and the fat of the kidney of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra, and a great, great slaughter in the land of Edomia. Uh, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 21. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 21, quickly. For time's sake, I'm going to begin reading. Look at verse number 9. It says, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Say a sword. A sword is sharpened and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It, uh, it contemneth the rod of my son as every tree, and he hath given it to be furbished, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened, and it is furbished to give it uh, into the hand of the slayer. This is uh, talking about the sword in heaven being bathed. It is being prepared in heaven right now to leave the mouth of Jesus at the battle of Armageddon and slay the enemies of the earth. It is being bathed so that it will be as sharp as possible. It is being bathed so that it will glitter, glimmer and glitter as it leaves the mouth of the Lord. Turn over to Revelation 21 and we'll see the sword of the Lord in action. Revelation 21 and look, or rather Revelation 19, excuse me, and look at verse number 11. Revelation 19 and verse number 11. The Bible says, And I saw heaven open. This is the rescue of the Jews. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. This passage makes me excited because I'm on Team Jesus. If you're not on Team Jesus, this passage ought to terrify you because this is an event that is going to happen. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war, and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Try to picture this in your imagination. And on his head were many crowns, and uh, he had a name written that would, no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And uh, the armies which were in heaven followed him. That's us upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, here it comes, goeth a sharp sword. This is the sword mentioned in Isaiah 34. This is the sword bathed in heaven in Ezekiel 21. A sharp sword. Um, uh, where, where was I here? And with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath, that's the terror of Almighty God. And he hath uh, on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together uh, to the supper of the great Lord, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of the uh, mighty, and uh, of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and sound, both small and 
great. The sword of the Lord, we know that the Bible is the sword of the Lord. We know that one day this sword will come out and destroy those who are against God, who line up in, in, in allegiance to the Antichrist. They're Antichrist, and they will suffer as a result. The terror of the Lord. We see the slaughter of the wicked, the sword of the Lord. Notice, let us see the sacrifice of the wicked. Hold your place in Revelation 19. We'll be coming back here in a moment. Go back to Isaiah 34. The sacrifice of the wicked. Now, this is the only place in Scripture that I could find where uh, uh, the events in Isaiah 34 are described. But look at verse number 6. Look at verse 6. It says, uh, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat uh, of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord at the sacrifice in Basra, and in great slaughter in the land of Edomia. Now at one point the Edomites had conquered the land where Baza was, and Baza re- became the place of worship for the Edomites. And so God is going to take their place of pagan worship, and He's going to use it to sacrifice. Look at verse 7. And the unicorns. Now, don't be thrown off by the word unicorns. This is a one-horned animal. This is not what you see on little girls' pajamas, okay? The unicorns is probably like a rhinoceros or an animal of such. The unicorns, a unicorn shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat with fatness. Look at verse 8. To my friend in the parking lot at the Exxon station on Main Street in Stratford on Monday, it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. Listen, I look around in an evil world today and I see people take, listen, I hear people take God's name in vain and it hurts my heart. I preached on anger Sunday morning. If there's anything that tempts me to be angry, it's when someone takes God's name in vain. It's when people are throwing around the name of Jesus and just with just such carelessness. I see people who hurt children and it hurts my heart. I see people who do great evil and it hurts my heart. I see folks who use financial schemes to get over on the poor, and it hurts my heart. And I wonder, God, where are you? There's coming a day where those who've done great evil, God will reconcile all of it. Listen, he's going to gather together the wicked, and he's going to take them to Basra, and the enemies of God will be slaughtered the way bullocks were on an altar. He's going to use his sword and he's going to cut them open and he's going to burn their bodies because of the way they have behaved. The sacrifice of the wicked. Letter D, notice the sentencing of the wicked. The sentencing of the wicked. Go back to um, Isaiah 34. Notice below that their souls in hell fire. Their souls in hell fire. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. Look here. And the streams thereof shall be, uh, shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone. This sounds a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. God is going to take their souls and send them to a place of fire and brimstone. 
Look at Revelation 19. And we see these verses about the battle of Armageddon in correlation uh, with Revelation 19. Isaiah 34 is the shadow of the truth. Uh, uh, Revelation 19 is the explanation of the truth. Isaiah 34 is the shadow to Revelation 19. Look at verse 19. It says here we get more clarity from the shadow. And I saw the beast and the king of kings of the earth and their armies. Look there. Gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And look here, and them that worshipped his image. Those are those that took the mark of the beast. These both, and that word both doesn't mean what it means in our modern day English. That's a word expressing plurality. These, all of these, were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword. That's the sacrifice at Basra. Slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. God's going to take their souls and send them to hell fire. We see their, the sentencing of the wicked, their souls in hellfire. Notice their cities in ruin. Their cities in ruin. Look back at verse 11. Now, an interesting study. We're running out of time here, but I want you to hear what I'm about to say. An interesting study in the Bible. If you want a, something that will help build your faith, go through the Bible and find all of the cities that have been prophesied that they would be destroyed and never inhabited again. There's four or five of them in Scripture. And all of those cities that have been destroyed, where a prophet said they will be destroyed and never inhabited again, none of them current to date have ever been inhabited. None of them. God prophesied it, and it came true. We see a similar prophecy here in Isaiah 34. Look at verse 11. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also and the raven. These are vultures shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all her princes shall be nothing. There will be no government here. And thorns shall come up in her palaces. The governmental buildings will be left desolate to fall to ruins. Nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island and the satyr. That satyr is a demon. The satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Verse 15, there shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, everyone with her mate. Now, I've done a lot of digging around these verses to try to figure out exactly where this is or what this is, and I can't come to a clear conclusion, but I will say this. God is going to take these cities that were inhabited, and He's going to utterly destroy them, and they will not be inhabited. There's the sentencing of the wicked. I sit out on my back porch right next door here, and I look out. I've got a view of the river. It's a beautiful view. And I love to look out there because I see the trees and I see the water flowing through. And then I look across the way and I see a power plant and I see condos. And one of those is really beautiful and the other one is man-made. 
You know, what God does is beautiful, and what man does is clunky and often ugly in comparison. One day, these great cities that man has built are going to be torn down and destroyed and be left to ruin. We see the slaughter of the wicked, the sword of the Lord, the sacrifice of the wicked, the sentencing of the wicked. Lastly, notice the surety of the Scripture, the surety of the Scripture. Look back at Isaiah 34, look at verse 16. Someone read this and think, oh, this is sensationalism. There's no way this is going to come true. And the prophet makes sure to leave no doubt about the surety of his prophecy. Verse 16, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth... For my mouth it hath commanded, and the Spirit it hath gathered them. And he that cast the lot for them in his land hath divided it unto them by line. There shall possess it forever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and we'll finish here this evening. Matthew 5 and verse 17. Some would say, Pastor, do you believe all of that? And I would say, I believe 100% of it. God has quite a record of prophesying things and then coming true. And based on God's record of prophecy coming true, the prophecy that has yet to come true, I believe, definitely will come true. And here Isaiah says, mark it down, write it down, as certain as I'm saying these things, they will come true. Look at Matthew 5, verse 17. Here God offers great validity to Isaiah's writing as well as the rest of the prophets. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, look here, or the prophets. And Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other prophet to validate him. He says here, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Look here, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, uh, one jot or one tittle in no wise shall pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. All of this prophecy that we read is going to come true. One more time. I know it's 8.17. We're going to be out of here by 8.20. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5. And look at verse 11. One more time. Because Christian, you and I do not need to worry about the terror of the Lord because we're believers. But we do need to be concerned about those who are not believers. Look at Second Corinthians 5. And look at verse 11. I want to drive this verse home down in our hearts. I just shared with you a terrifying set of events for the lost. Paul says again, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, read those next three words with me, ready? We persuade men. I finished with this. Would you let your neighbor's house burn down and not run over and help them. What kind of person would you be to let someone die in a home that was burning? Let's say you had a handicapped neighbor that couldn't get out. His house is on fire and you just sit there and watch him die. How cold-hearted would you have to be? You say, well, I'm concerned what he'd think about me if I just broke into his house. I think he'd be a little understanding once you got him out. Too many Christians are too concerned about their image and their acceptance 
of a world who is on their way to a devil's hell to share the gospel. You know what? That person on the other side of the gas pump, if they get offended over your track, at least you warned them. That coworker of yours who thinks you're crazy for going to church, at least you warned them. Uh, that uh, relative of yours at that family reunion who thinks you're a religious loony and a kook because you go to church and give your money to the Lord and uh, you help support the causes, uh, at least you warned them. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Oh, that's great that you're on your way to heaven. How about all those people that are not? How about all those people that are going to be taken on that judgment day? drug over to the portals of, of eternity, and thrown into hell to live under the terror of God for all of eternity. Oh, we can't save them all. Those people that you work with and are, exist within your circle, you can do everything you can to pray and witness and share and evangelize and persuade them for the sake of the Gospel. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, I pray that you take Isaiah 34. It is a sensational passage. But God, this is not just some sci-fi script. Lord, these events are truly going to come to pass. It's going to be neat being on the winning side. But Lord, help us to do our best to recruit our loved ones and our friends Help us to persuade. Help us not just to soul warn, but Lord, to soul win. And God, use our testimony. May our testimony not be a blight to our language. Or may the way we live be above board and filled with integrity so that the world will hear our message and see our Savior not only with what we say, but how we live. Lord, use this Bible study tonight to motivate us to go and tell the world about the most wonderful news that you save men, you save the souls of mankind. Lord, be with us tonight. Use this Bible study in our hearts to motivate us. Help us to go to work tomorrow with the love of Jesus in our lip, on our lips and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.